Father, we come now to your word and we ask, Father, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we would have eyes to see. God, that we would have ears to hear. Lord, that we would have a heart that desires to know you. Lord, that you would illuminate the words of these passages this morning. Father, we stand before your word knowing that it is true, that it is sufficient, that it is authoritative, that you have given us your word so that we could know everything this side of eternity that you desire to know us about. So Father, even the things that are hard to reckon with on our own, will you, by the power of your spirit, grant us today understanding? Lord, will you sanctify us today in truth? We trust that your we ask all these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. And everyone said, amen, amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. And uh, as you find your seats this morning, I invite you to turn with me to your Bible, uh, Acts chapter 2. We're going to be looking together at verses uh, 1 through 41, covering all of this together this morning. Um, if you're our guest, you're with us for the first time, uh, even if you uh, gather regularly with us, I want to remind you, we do always have Bibles available uh, at the table on your way in. If you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you as you leave today. Feel free to grab one of those as you leave, uh, no strings attached. We just want to put that in your hands and encourage you to use that as we open up God's Word together every week. Um, when I was uh, in college and at, right when Emily and I first got married, I was working in retail management. I was working for a large uh, major retailer clothing company. And um, oftentimes working in retail, you'll get customers that come into a store looking for things that your store doesn't actually have. And so I remember one particular occasion, I was working on a Sunday afternoon, and uh, a lady came into our store, and she was uh, shopping for athletic shoes for her teenage son. And uh, I just explained to her, that's not really the type of store that we were. It was mostly uh, dress clothes that we, that we had, and told her, hey, you know, we occasionally have dress shoes, and then it's seasonally. Uh, we'll have slippers maybe around the holidays, uh, but we don't have athletic shoes. And then uh, a- after hearing this, she went on to tell me that, no, in fact, we did. And, and she knew that because she had purchased shoes from there before. And then I just gently explained to her that uh, I was over the shipments and uh, the inventory for that entire store. And I knew for certain, uh, having worked for this company for a while, that we had never sold exactly what she was looking for. But I explained that to her and, and gave her direction. Hey, there's a couple of other stores right here in the mall that you can go to and you're going to find what you need. So I don't think much about this interaction. This was kind of a common thing. But then uh, just a couple of days later, uh, I log online and I'm looking at online surveys that have come out. And this lady had written a scathing review about our store. And uh, the, I mean, paragraphs long and at the very top of this review were the words, expectations not met. And, and I learned from reading this review that not only did she not go to the stores I recommended, she went to some of our sister stores looking for the same thing and was equally as frustrated that she also didn't find it there. Um, and, and so uh, at the end of this interaction, you know, I, I'd explain this to her gently as best as I could, thinking she'd say, hey, thank you. Instead, she, she kind of scoffs at that and says, oh, well, thanks for wasting my time. Now, uh, I would just ask you, like, please don't be that customer. This is for all the retail people in the room. If you are, tell the store you go to church somewhere else, just not here. Um, so, so that's not what we want to be as followers of Jesus. But this was the problem. Uh, the problem is she did not have an accurate definition of who we were. So she had faulty expectations of what she expected us to have. Because she didn't know about our company, because she didn't know what we were seeking to provide, because she didn't have a foundation for who we were, she had faulty expectations for what she thought uh, we should be doing. Now, if I asked you the question this morning, just uh, as someone either who's a follower of Jesus or maybe someone even who has no background in the church whatsoever, 
I would just ask you that this simple question, if someone asked you to define the word church, how would you respond? If you were, were walking down Bay Street this week and you happened to cross paths with someone who uh, miraculously had never heard the word church before and had no idea what a Christian was and no familiarity with the Bible and no familiarity with cultural Christianity and, and they got to talking with you and you were sharing your story and, and part of that story is being a part of a church and they asked you, well, what exactly is a church? How would you respond? And what would be the basis for your answer? How many of us could give an answer? You know, even as you ask professing followers of Jesus today across the landscape uh, of Christianity, I think we'd get a lot of different answers. For some, uh, their definition would have more to do with place. They think of a, the church as an institution uh, more, or just a, an organization or a building that we go to on a consistent basis. Some might say uh, the church is wherever I can be with other Christians for the purpose of worship. Some might say a church is me just listening to a podcast of a sermon with a group of friends, or some might quote Matthew chapter 18, which we'll look at in several weeks, and say, hey, church is just wherever two or three are gathered. So what would serve as the basis? What would be the foundation for your definition of church? So today we're kicking off what is going to be a 13-week message series through the spring. Lord willing, this is going to take us all the way up to Easter Sunday, where we're going to define the word church. We're going to take all of our experiences, we're going to take all of our opinions, we're going to take all of our preferences and all of our personal definitions, and we're going to subject them to the authority of God's word. You know, if you just asked me this morning, uh, how would you summarize this whole message series in one sentence, I could do it in three words, and I would encourage you to write them down. Now, one simple sentence is this, words have meaning. Words have meaning. We're going to see in just a moment, this word church, it has a meaning. It has a definition. And you and I have not been given editorial freedom over the word of God to make this word church mean whatever we want it to mean. Uh, so this is what we're going to do today. We're going to start out just kind of setting the trajectory of the series. We're going to define the word church, both the global church and the local church. We're going to define the word church. And then we're going to go to Acts chapter two, and we're going to visit the church at ground zero. There's a sense in which we're going to go, uh, as it were, into the labor and delivery room, and we're going to see the birth of the church and see what marked the birth of the church. So uh, let's just start right away this morning with, with some definitions. We've titled this message series Ecclesia. That's uh, the Greek for church. And that word simply means assembly or gathering. Everybody say assembly. Everybody say gathering. That's what the word means. Uh, at no point in time throughout the, the entirety of the New Testament does this word church ever refer to a facility or a structure. The church is a body. The church is the body of Jesus Christ, the living, breathing body of Christ that visibly displays uh, his love and shares his gospel in the world. But, but like all words, sometimes uh, this word church could take on multiple meanings. So uh, one sense we talk about the word church in uh, terms of universal or global church. Uh, oftentimes we'll refer to this shorthand as the big C church. And, and what we mean by that is really all believers in all places across all time. Uh, Jonathan Lehman, I think, has offered a really good definition of the universal church. He says, it's a heavenly and eschatological assembly of everyone, past, present, and future, who belongs to Christ's new covenant and kingdom. Uh, I think that's a pretty solid definition. You could expand on that a little bit more, uh, but generally it just refers to all believers in all places across all time. Here's where there tends to be a little bit more debate. What exactly is a local church? 
Because yes and amen, we see all through the New Testament uh, God's desire for the church as a global body. But what we see as we, we read through the book of Acts and as we read through all the New Testament epistles is that it is very much God's design and his desire for every member of the global body of Christ to be a part of a local assembly of believers. And again, we cannot simply make this word church mean whatever we want it to mean. But friends, this is important for us to see this morning. God does not exist to affirm all of our personal definitions and impulses of what we want the church to be. He actually has a definition for what this church, is, for what this word is, and actually has a design for what it's supposed to be and how it's supposed to be fleshed out in the word. So just uh, on the basis of several passages of scripture, this is uh, in your notes this morning, this is what we see to be the irreducible minimums of what makes a biblical church. Uh, we believe based on our reading of God's word that to eliminate any one of these things is to no longer have a congregation in the biblical sense. So the local church is an assembly or it's a gathering, but more specifically, it's an assembly of believers in Jesus Christ who profess him as Lord and are submitted to the authority of his word. And this is how a church functions. They regularly gather under the leadership of qualified pastors and elders to receive the whole counsel of God's word and to observe the ordinances of baptism and communion. They stir one another up to love and good works, hold each other accountable to walk in holiness and work together to advance the gospel to the ends of the earth. We have to start with a healthy definition of what the church is. And here's why we're paying so much attention to this through the spring. Because number one is still a relatively new church. It's incredibly important that we continue to prioritize church health, even as our congregation continues to grow. Uh, the, the older a church becomes, the longer a church exists, the more prone we are to drift away from the biblical design of what the church is and what the church is supposed to be doing. And so we, as followers of Jesus, we have to continually reorient ourselves around the word of God and his purposes for his people. But the second reason we would do this is because without an accurate definition of what the church is, what you and I, where you and I will find ourselves is perpetually frustrated by something that doesn't actually exist. What we'll do is, is we'll find ourselves frustrating because we will be seeking out something and, and holding congregations accountable maybe to things that God didn't even design for them to do. I would argue that a lot of our, our consumer-driven frustration related to the church today is because we don't even biblically know what the church is, and we don't really know what the church is supposed to be doing. And so uh, when the church does not meet our unspoken expectations and personal preferences, we just kind of assume it's a failure. We need to subject all of our opinions, all of our preferences, all of our definitions at the feet of the word of God. So that, that's our foundation for the series, and here's what we're going to see today. We're going to go to Acts chapter 2. And we're going to see the earliest moments of the church. And again, just as best as possible, I want you to put yourselves, remember, these are human beings that we read about in Scripture. As best as possible, I want you to put yourself in their shoes. Just a short time earlier, Jesus has ascended into heaven. This is after they've followed him for three years. You know, it's been a confusing several weeks. Seven weeks before, Jesus is crucified. He's buried, but then he rises again from the grave. He appears to his disciples. He's appointed Peter to be uh, the leader of, of this movement, and he's given them very simple instructions. Matthew 28 and Acts 1, go into all the world and preach the gospel to the nations. Jesus had given them these instructions, go to Jerusalem and, and wait. So, can you imagine 
the feelings of these people in this moment? 120 of them, not just in a single congregation. That, that's, that's how many of them there were, period. Being a part of the catalyst that, that is going to, to see a movement come that, that, that is unlike anything the world has ever seen. That moment of fear, the moments of, of insecurity, the moments of confusion. Uh, Lord, what, what have we really gotten ourselves into here? It's in that time that the Lord pours out his Holy Spirit and the church is, uh, comes to life and, and explodes onto the scene. So from Acts chapter 2, uh, we're going to read together just beginning with verse 1. And because and, there's a couple of details in verse 1 that we need to make sure that we see. It says in Acts chapter 2 verse 1 that when the day of Pentecost, we're going to talk about that in a little bit, arrived, uh, they were all together in one place. So when we talk about the church at ground zero, this is subtle, but something that we shouldn't miss. Uh, when we look at the church at ground zero, we need to see first, there were people. And again, this might seem like a very obvious point, but it's one that I, I think that we absolutely don't need to miss because uh, Western church mentality, we tend to have very individualistic assumptions of what the church actually is. We, we many of us seem to be under the impression that we can make the church be whatever we want it to be or, or just participate in any sort of spiritual activity and call it church. We see that they were gathered together in one place. So they, meaning there was more than one, and together it was an assembly. Now, we, we teach it just like this in our membership class. Many of you have, have heard this before because, uh, again, as obvious as it might seem, we don't want to miss the point. The word church means assembly, and those of you who have been through Crosspoint's, what is the defining characteristic of assemblies? They assemble. Like, that's it. Like, that, let's not miss this. Because when, when we take out the gathering as integral to the life of the body of Christ, when we treat it as a non-essential, we betray our fundamental identity as followers of Jesus. They were together. That's the earliest glimpse we have of this body of believers. It was no Lone Ranger Christians. They were gathered together together. They needed each other. Persecution was, was right at their heels. There was a movement of, of religious leaders that wanted to stamp them out. They were together. They were gathered together in one place. Hebrews chapter 10 is, is just our clearest uh, biblical New Testament command for how we should approach the gathering, how we should think about the gathering. The writer of Hebrews reminds us, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. Again, that this was already uh, happening in the first century. Some had fallen into the habits of not being part of the gathering. And, and the, the very straightforward command we have here is don't do that. Don't fall into this habit. Don't neglect the gathering. Assemblies assemble. When we don't do this, we betray our identity. And he says, encouraging one another all the more as you see the day of the Lord drawing near. I think this needs to be restated over and over and over again because right now that the cultural drift is not for believers to gather more and more. The cultural drift has been for believers to gather all the less. What we see, man, is, is we anticipate the coming of Jesus Christ. We as followers of Jesus should be striving to gather as frequently as possible. In, in here for worship, in each other's homes, all throughout the community, we should be seeking as much as possible fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ. We gather together. Even in the church today, I think we champion a lot of very shallow cliches that discourage us from fully participating in the gathering. So you'll hear, you know, someone like me and get up and emphasize the importance of gathering together for worship. And, and so somebody might respond like this, what's the big deal? The church is more than the building. The church isn't just what happens inside the four walls of Sunday morning. And I would say to that, 
Praise God, yes. The church is absolutely more than what happens at the gathering. The church is more than the building, but it's not less than the gathering. The word church means assembly. It means gathering. So yes, the building is optional. Friends, the gathering is not. This is fundamental to our identity. This is integral to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We cannot forsake the gathering. You might hear someone say, well, uh, my church or my, my Bible study group or the parachurch ministry that I'm a part of, weekly coffee with friends, us getting together and talking about spiritual things, that's church. And, and, and friends, I would just really encourage you when you hear things like this, statements like this, cliches like this, develop a really, really simple habit of asking a very simple question. Is this affirmed by the word of God? Like when we say these types of things, when we throw these cliches out, like let's just adopt the habit of just saying, is, is this supported by what we see in scripture? Because I laid out that definition for us earlier, because again, when, when we open up the New Testament, these are the irreducible minimums. It's not just two or three people talking about the Bible. No, there, there are requirements for what constitutes a biblical church. People regularly gathering together, qualified pastors and elders, the whole counsel of God's word, church discipline and accountability, ordinances of baptism and communion, fulfilling the great commission together. When we lose these things, we no longer have the church in the biblical sense. You commonly hear it said today, again, I love Jesus, but I don't need the church. Listen, you cannot love Jesus and then say you don't need what Jesus says you need. And it betrays our identity as followers of Christ. We are part of the body of Christ. But we've hammered this message over and over again for the last five years because these are foundations we have to make sure we never, ever leave. The church is not a place. Church is people. And friend, you have a greater responsibility than just listening to a sermon once a week. We belong to one another because the church isn't a building. The church is a body. The church is not activity. The church is identity. Assemblies assemble. It's, it's a part, an essential part of who we are as believers. When we forsake the assembly, we forsake our identity as followers of Christ. They were gathered together. And that's a point that we can't miss. So what were they doing while they were gathered together? Second, we see the church at ground zero, there was prayer. There was prayer. Now this is where we need to go uh, backwards just a little bit because we're jumping right into Acts 2. If you go uh, back into Luke 24, Acts 1, we see Jesus giving the, the, the instructions. He had told them uh, that he was going to, to ascend and that uh, as we read earlier from John 14, he was going to send the Holy Spirit to them. So the instruction was go to Jerusalem and wait. It wasn't, hey, just immediately start going door to door sharing the gospel. He said, no, you need to wait on the power of the Holy Spirit. And so uh, what we see in Acts 2 is the disciples being obedient to what Jesus commanded them to do. They've gone to Jerusalem, they're waiting. And uh, as we go back to Acts chapter one, verses 12 through 14, we see everybody who was gathered there in Jerusalem, Peter and all the disciples. And it says in verse 14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Jesus told them, go to Jerusalem and wait. They're gathered together. And what are they doing in their waiting? They're praying. They're praying. Prayer is the expression of dependence on God, that they are fully dependent on God, trusting in the promise of Jesus that he would do exactly what he said he would do. We see even after Peter's sermon at Pentecost, as we get later into the book of Acts chapter two, verse 42, one of the primary marks of these believers is that they were devoted to prayer. It was integral to the practice in the rhythm of the early church. Uh, uh, John Onwachekwa has written a really helpful short book on prayer. Our whole staff read it together last year. And I know a few of our elders, I think several of you probably have as well. 
And, and he said something within this book about the nature of prayer that I thought was so powerful as it relates to the life of the church. He said, prayer is oxygen for the Christian. It sustains us. So it follows that prayer must be a source of life for any community of Christians. It is to the church what it is to individuals, breathing. Yet many of our gatherings could be likened to people coming together merely to hold their collective breath. And this would explain why people seem to have so little energy for actually living out the Christian life. The church was born through the labor of prayer. And a critical foundation of a healthy labor and delivery process is knowing how to breathe. That's what prayer is for us. It is the breath of God. Being breathed ends our lungs. God invites us into relationship and dependency on him. Prayer is the ultimate expression of trust and dependency. That's what we're doing when we're praying. It is itself an act of faith. We are, by virtue of what we're doing, coming before God and acknowledging, Father, I cannot do this on my own. I am in need of your help. I am in need of your strength. I am in need of your support. I am in need of all that you supply. Prayer is the ultimate act of humility, and it is the lifeblood for the church, but it's a work that we so easily forsake. Uh, Mark Dever says it a little bit more pointedly. Now, I'm just going to say on the front end, and I'll clarify again in just a moment. Uh, 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 When he made these comments, they were made very tongue-in-cheek, and it seems pretty intense, but I think you'll get the point of what he's trying to to say, he said, we should pray so much in our services that nominal Christians will grow bored talking to the God they only pretend to know. That's a lot. Again, he said that very much tongue in cheek. And I promise you, our staff did not sit around this past week and say, we should pray so much that all the fake Christians leave this way. Like that didn't happen behind the scenes, I promise you. But I think you get the point of what he's trying to say. This God who has given his son Jesus, as we sang earlier, who paid it all, paid the price for our sins. This God who is the creator of the universe, the sustainer of all things, he invites us into relationship with him. That this God in whom we are promised is the fullness of joy, who at his right hand are pleasures forevermore, who promises us something that this world could never offer, who has raised us from death to life and has, has seated us uh, at his, right, in, right in his presence. We can come to him boldly. That this God who's done all of these things for us, how would we not desire to come to him in prayer? When we gather, we should be eager to pray. Uh, We don't just pray through through verbal prayers, but we pray through the songs that we sing. I, I believe those are synonymous with one another, but God desires his people to pray. He has ordained that we pray. He, he invites us to pray and he delights in our asking because he knows that by coming to him, we're expressing total dependence on him. uh, Those of you who've been with us for, for a little while, you know that, um, we just transitioned out of a season where uh, we had been having three worship gatherings on Sunday mornings. And a lot of that was by necessity. You know, it was, it was a confusing time just with COVID cases. And we had uh, faced some building restrictions here and the number of people we were allowed to have. And, and so it really wasn't a decision we wanted to make. It was a decision by necessity that we uh, were, were having a third worship gathering. And, and honestly, like we saw our church grow pretty substantially during that season. You know, uh, that third option brought in lots of new folks. And so we were seeing great participation, but, but here was the concern we felt as leaders and we absolutely heard from you as well, was that we were gathering together and it felt like we were having to rush. And, and so we were already on a trajectory of, okay, how do we get back to two worship services so that we're not having to cut out uh, the, the uh, healthy worship as we gather together and the quality of our worship on Sunday morning? Let me tell you the week that the straw bro- that broke the camel's back for me. Uh, we had a, a Sunday morning where we had some things to share about 
uh, the facility, and then we had a video where we were highlighting a ministry initiative. And, and so what I did that morning was, you know, I'm sitting th- so here thinking, okay, grace and praise when, uh, when we start our worship gatherings, and then uh, one of the members of our elder team prays, and then grace and usually prays again. So, you know, we've already prayed three times by the time I get up to preach, so I'll just jump right into the message. And some of y'all didn't like that at all, in a good way. I mean, we, we had a few brothers and sisters in our own church family who came to me, I mean, a couple right after service that day, and then some who emailed later this week, I mean, out of genuine concern, not out of biting concern, genuine concern. The Taylor, I, it really concerns me that we are cutting prayer in the name of some of these other things. And that was the day the straw broke the camel's back. And I'm just gonna be fully transparent with you. You know what I did that Sunday morning? As soon as our service is in, I went and sat in my car behind this building, and, and I just wept, and I thanked God for a body of believers that desires to pray. I thanked God for that. Because church, this is our lifeblood. Like we should be constantly asking ourselves, how do we stay tuned in to the Lord when we gather together for worship? And this is just really our conviction as a church because the decision we made to go back to two services, man, that goes in the face of everything every church growth expert would ever say. But this is what we have to recognize. When we have to forsake health in the name of growth, we've already stopped growing whether we know it or not, at least in the things that matter in the eyes of God. Just because a church grows numerically doesn't mean that it's healthy. And so that, that's what we loved about coming back is that when, when we uh, don't have as much that we have to rush, there's not as much that we have to do that we really can be sensitive and press into what the Lord's doing in the moments that we're gathered together for worship. This was the church at Ground Zero. They were people and they were committed to prayer. Uh, this is what we see uh, in the next few verses. Acts chapter two, verses two through four. It says, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So at ground zero, we see of these believers, there were people, there was prayer. Third, there was power. There was the power of the Holy Spirit. So a little bit of context here, just in case you're not familiar. Um, Verse one tells us that the day of Pentecost had arrived. If you're not familiar, Pentecost was the second annual feast on the Jewish calendar. It followed the Passover. And what Pentecost commemorated was how, or Passover commemorated was how God had delivered his people from the bondage of slavery in Egypt. So on the day of Passover, uh, what we see in the book of Exodus is that God had commanded the people to slaughter a lamb. And to take the blood of the lamb and to cover the doorposts of their homes so that when the 10th and final plague came to the nation of Israel, the the angel of death, uh, it would pass over the homes of those who were covered by the blood of the lamb. The firstborn of the children of Egypt were put to death, uh, but the firstborn of God's people were preserved because they were covered by the blood of the lamb. And then Pentecost, which is also known as the Feast of Weeks, came 50 days after Passover. So uh, on the first Pentecost, the nation of Israel received the law through Moses. And they were told that once they entered into the promised land, God was going to provide everything that they needed. Now, here's how that's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Uh, It was um, the night before Jesus went to the cross that he sat down and he observed the Passover meal with his disciples. Jesus was the final lamb to be slaughtered. His blood was going to cover the sins of all the people. It was his body, as we'll observe here in a few moments, that was broken. It was his blood that was shed. And then at Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit, this is demonstrating how God will provide everything that they need. Jesus had promised this, Acts 1, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. 
to be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. So that's how it's fulfilled in Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit. Pentecost emphasized gratitude for salvation and, uh, or excuse me, uh, Passover emphasized gratitude for salvation. Pentecost emphasizes gratitude for provision. So that's, that's what's happening here. That's why it's significant that it's the day of Pentecost. These two are inextricably linked together. Now, here's what we see uh, unfold in verses 5 through 13 of Acts chapter 2. It says, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together. And they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them in our own tongues, uh, telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Verse 12 says, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But some mocking said, they are filled with new wine. So it's a pretty incredible phenomenon that unfolds here in Acts chapter 2. Now, just a quick side note, I actually preached on this passage back in August 2020, so I'm not going to rehash everything this morning. You could go back and listen to that for a little bit more in-depth context, but there's a lot that's debated about this passage. Just a couple of quick things about what we see here in verses 5 Uh, through 13. If you go to 1 Kings 19, we see that uh, fire and wind are are, are really uh, pictures uh, for the presence of God. And that that happens during the life of Elijah. So we're told that as they sat in the house, there was a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Uh, Now, some have debated, was it an actual wind? Uh, I think personally that that it was just a sound um, that Luke didn't really know how to describe. We know that Luke was a very articulate guy. He uh, authors the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. It's about 25% of our New Testament, very nuanced. Um, But I truly believe that Luke has come to the end of human language. Uh, It's a phenomenon that's so extraordinary that the best he can do is to say there was a sound like the wind. And then he goes on to say that there were divided tongues as of fire. And so he uses just these symbols, these images and these metaphors, because I believe he's just come to the end of the limits of human language to describe the phenomenon that's taking place. So what took place is that the Holy Spirit was poured out. It's funny, when I said that in the first service, the rain just like dumped. It was a great, it was a great, you just have to pretend that it's happening again now, because it was a really good illustration for the first group. And and maybe you're still soaked to the bone and and you still get the point, But, but the Holy Spirit is poured out. And this is the miracle at Pentecost, is all of these people who were Galileans, suddenly they could miraculously speak other languages. Again, it's somewhat debated in this passage because some uh, will make the argument that uh, these weren't human languages, this was a heavenly language, this was an angelic dialect. Now, uh, if you dig into the language of what's actually happening here in Acts chapter 2, that is two separate things. Like uh, what many are referring to tongues of angels, that's what Paul addresses in the book of 1 Corinthians. So understand, that's a separate gift. Uh, what Paul is talking about, or excuse me, what Luke is talking about here in Acts 2, th- these are known human dialects. If you uh, dig into the language, it's abundantly clear these are understandable languages, and I think it's made pretty clear by the context. Uh, it says in uh, early on that uh, verse 6, they were be- bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Again, verse 11, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So it's clear that what was being spoken, these were intelligible human languages. And so that's the phenomenon, is is all these people who've been gathered together in prayer, 
can miraculously speak these languages that they had never spoken before at a time while people from all over the world just so happened to be gathered in Jerusalem. Now, why is that significant? Because Jesus had given his disciples a great commission in Matthew 28. And what was the great commission? To make disciples of how many nations? All the nations. And then he promises them, Acts chapter 1, and you will receive power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. Church, here's the truth that we can cling to today. God's word never commands what his spirit will not provide. God gave them what they needed. It was the ability to speak miraculously these languages so that the good news of the gospel could be proclaimed. And this is bewildering to the people. I mean, they're just blown away. Their only explanation is these people must be drunk. Now, uh, we'll, we'll talk about this in just a moment. It will never not be funny to me that in the very first sermon in the history of the church, Peter starts out his sermon by saying, attention, everyone, I promise we're not drunk. He's like, I know this seems crazy, but let me explain. And then he launches into the gospel. Like it was such a crazy phenomenon. Like that was the only explanation to the people. And, And church, I just have to wonder sometimes, does the world see within us a power that leaves them bewildered? a power that, 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 that they can only look at and say, look, look, something is wrong with these people. Something that, that can't be explained in their own words. Um, it was uh, January 8th, uh, just, a, just a few days ago, it marked the 66th anniversary of the death of the famous missionary Jim Elliott. And if you don't know Jim Elliott's story, uh, just a powerful story of a man who was just wholeheartedly surrendered to God and to his mission. Uh, he lost his life advancing the gospel. This was Operation Aka to the Harani uh, people in Ecuador, and he and a few others, uh, in their desire to take the message of the gospel to these unreached people, uh, they lost their lives in the process. And it was October 28th, uh, 1949. So it was 38 years to the day before I was born. Uh, Jim Elliott spoke some words that, that I have just laid claim as, as words to live by. And he recorded in a journal entry, this isn't in your notes, I'm going to share another quote from him in a moment. He recorded in a journal entry these words. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And then it was just several years later in advancing the message of the gospel, Jim Elliott gave what he knew he couldn't keep, which was his life. And on that day, he gained that which he will never lose, which is Christ. And yet someone with such a powerful testimony was also humble enough to once say these words. This is in your notes this morning. Forgive me for being so ordinary while claiming to know so extraordinary a God. Church, when the world sees us, do they see power? Are they perplexed? Are they bewildered by the power of an extraordinary God who's working through an extraordinary people? And the primary way that that is displayed is through the preaching and the proclamation of the gospel. Now, I was worried we weren't going to have time to do this with this service. We did it with the first because... We have uh, baptisms to celebrate right after this worship service today, which we praise God for. But uh, I've been talking a million miles an hour so that we could. And uh, so this is what we're going to do. This is going to be very different than anything we normally do. This is not the end of the message yet. Uh, But I I really wanted to bring this home for us, maybe in a way that helps us uh, just put ourselves in the moment a little bit more in in, in just a second. Uh, In just a second, I'm going to read Peter's whole sermon from Pentecost. It's just a few minutes long uh, from verses 14 to 41. But what I want you to do, once again, so just put yourself in the place of the people who were there. Imagine that you are in a foreign country where nobody else speaks English. I mean, think about something really obscure. You know, Singalese or 
uh, Tamil or uh, Arabic dialects that maybe only a few hundred people in the world. I mean, just, just put yourself in the position of being somewhere where, where you cannot understand at all. Like you have no context for the words that are being spoken. And then all of a sudden, as you're walking through the streets, you hear a group of people from a house nearby start praising God in English. And suddenly you're like, I understand that. What is going on here? Like, who, who are all these English-speaking people in, in the middle of this place where, where basically nobody speaks English? And this phenomenon draws them in, and this crowd starts to gather. So this is what I want to ask us to do. Uh, I want you to stand up with me for just a moment, and, and, and I'm going to play Peter here for a second. I'm just going to read his sermon from Pentecost. And, and I want us, maybe you need to, to close your eyes, kind of put yourself in the moment for a second, or again, the words are going to be on the screen, because the evidence of the power of the Spirit is the forward proclamation of the gospel. Remember, this is Peter who just seven weeks before, he pretended he did not even know who Jesus was. And you ask, what happened in seven weeks? The answer is, he saw a man who had walked out of the grave. And he boldly stands up and he preaches the gospel. And this is the first Christian sermon. These are Peter's words to the crowd on the day of Pentecost. So Acts chapter two, uh, I'm gonna begin uh, in verse 14. It says, Peter standing with the 11, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. That will never not be funny to me. Peter, is, it's five o'clock somewhere, but not here. We're not drunk. This is real. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So these are people who would have been familiar with these words. He says, and in the last days, it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show signs and wonders above, and the signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass, here it is, that everyone, everyone, who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The men of Israel hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Verse 29, he says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. And his tomb is with us to this day, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him 
both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So, so just imagine this now for a moment. Peter has preached this message. This is who Jesus is. This is what he's done. We put him on the cross. We're responsible for this. He is the one that we've been waiting for. He is the son of David that we've been longing to see. And this group of people hears the message of the gospel. And you just imagine for just a second that, that Craig or, or Thayer or, or Mike or Emily, someone calls out from the crowd and says, brothers, what do we do? Someone calls out and says, tell us what to do. How do we respond? It says, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Here's Peter's response. Repent. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. But those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And this is the word of God. Be seated for just a moment. Close. So again, here it was that this band of 120 people, 120 people gathered together, desperately seeking the Lord in prayer, marked by the power of his Holy Spirit. Cowardly Peter from seven weeks ago stands up and boldly declares the message of the gospel as the evidence that they had received the power of God. There were people who were gathered for prayer, who were marked by the power of the Spirit, who were proclaiming the gospel. When we think about all of our definitions of church, guys, my fear is that we have drifted from those foundations. When we revisit the church at Ground Zero and we see the simplicity of this, I just want to challenge us to really think this morning, is that enough for us anymore? Like, is it enough for us to be a part of a people who are seeking the Lord in prayer, who are walking in the power of the Spirit, who are boldly declaring the gospel, is that really enough? Or have we so complicated our definition of church that we no longer even know what it is? We see the beauty of this on display. Uh, This is in your notes. We're going to close with this this morning. This is from Eugene Peterson. And and it expresses a lot of my heart and my concern for uh, even our own church family. We, we celebrate a fifth birthday this coming Saturday, January 22nd, which I'll talk about in just a moment. But, but it's, it's my concern that we, we can so easily drift away from the simplicity of being people who pray with power and who preach the message of the gospel. And this is what we easily become. We read this together with our elder team and staff the last couple of weeks. I wanted to share it with you today. This is Eugene Peterson. He wrote these words 30 years ago just assessing what he was seeing uh, at the the cultural moment at the time, and I I believe very prophetic for uh, where we are today. He said, the pastors of America have metamorphosed into a company of shopkeepers and the shops that keep are churches. They're preoccupied with shopkeepers' concerns, how to keep the customers happy, how to lure customers away from competitors down the street, how to package the goods so that the customers will lay out more money. Some of them are very good shopkeepers. They attract a lot of customers, pull in great sums of money, develop splendid reputations, yet it is still shopkeeping. Religious shopkeeping to be sure, but shopkeeping all the same. The marketing strategies of the fast food franchise occupy the waking minds of these entrepreneurs. While asleep, they dream of the kind of success that will get the attention of journalists. The biblical fact, pay attention to this, the biblical fact is there are no successful churches. And if you flesh that out in the full context of the book, he really means success 
in terms of what the world sees as success. He says there are instead communities of sinners gathered before God week after week in towns and villages all over the world. The Holy Spirit gathers them and does his work in them. In these communities of sinners, one of the sinners is called pastor and given a designated responsibility to the community. The pastor's responsibility is to keep the community attentive to God. And it is this responsibility that's being abandoned in spades. And this is Peter in Acts 1 and Acts 2. Peter, who had denied knowing Jesus, that the beautiful campfire moment of restoration that we get with Jesus and Peter. Jesus goes to Peter and says, do you love me? Yes, three times, feed my sheep. This is Peter doing his best for in these days as they wait for the power of the Holy Spirit to keep the people attentive to God. Keep them focused on God. Keep them seeking the Lord. Keep them uh, seeking him through prayer and through his word. Keeping their attention off of the million other things that they could be focused on and seeking him. I said just a second ago, again, this, this coming Saturday, January 22nd, is to the day, five years since we had a public, our first public worship gathering as a church. I'm just curious, how many of you were there that day? Um, that's awesome. I think it's fitting you guys that were there. Remember, it was also pouring rain that day. Um, so you, those of you who weren't here, you know a little bit about what that was like because uh, that's what we stepped into that morning. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll never forget that day. I, I journaled down a lot of thoughts at the end of that day just because I wanted to be able to remember and, and went back and reread some of that this week. And, and there's no doubt most of what I experienced that day was joy. I mean, this was two years of hard, unseen, behind-the-scenes work and labor that was finally coming to fruition. Uh, what we had was a small group of people, a few dozen people, who would gather together, and mostly what we did on Saturday mornings was pray. We were asking the Lord to pour out his Holy Spirit, and we came in that Sunday morning armed with nothing but the preaching of the gospel. We had gone before the Lord with a prayer. We said, either the gospel is enough to build your church, or it's not. We believe that it is, and so here we go. And so most of what I felt that day was joy. Just the, saw that coming to fruition. We, uh, what was added to the number that day were three brothers and sisters in Christ who profess faith in Jesus that we, we still remember and we celebrate. We get to celebrate more baptisms here at the end of this service today. But, but I have to be honest, I shared this with some of our staff this past week. I, I realized I'd never shared this with anyone before. Uh, but I'd written this down, remembered it this past week. You know, the, uh, when we launched the church that day, there, there was also a sense of grief over something that was lost because I knew that we would never just be the upper room again. I knew that the moment an extra couple hundred people started coming through the doors, I was, from that day forward, going to have to fight playing the role of shopkeeper. And that it was going to be a battle that we were going to have to fight literal hell to keep one another attentive to God. So church, listen, I don't know about you, but like I have no interest in shopkeeping. And I think that's a danger for us as we move forward into our next five years is that we just fall into the monotony of shopkeeping. I have no desire to be a shopkeeper who exists to satisfy the, the desires of consumers. And listen, I would hope that you have no desire to simply just be a consumer, but that we would be people who are attentive to God, who seek the Lord with our whole hearts. And so, you know, I've, I've had this conversation with several folks over the last uh, few weeks and really over the last few years, just asking, well, man, how do we get back to that? But we'll say it often, how, we need to get back to Acts 2. How do we get back to that? And, and listen, I think here's a, a tough reality we have to recognize. We don't go back to that. But here's the good news. God is not the God who's about always going back to the good old days. He's about the God who wants to do something new right here and right now. 
and who desires to do greater things than we've ever seen before. And that's what he promises as we seek him in prayer by the power of his Holy Spirit. So we just uh, bow your heads with me as we um, close out our time together this morning. We want to be people who seek him in prayer, who walk in his power, who proclaim the good news of the gospel. And I should have mentioned this earlier, and many of you uh, are participating in baptism. If you want to go ahead and step out to change this morning, that's fine, and we'll get going. But you, or feel free just to stay here. You're going to have time. But we want to be people who are seeking the Lord, who are attentive to God. That, that is my commitment to you, is to do all that I can do to keep you attentive to God. And we have to be doing this together as a body of believers, keeping one another attentive to God. So, Fathers, we come to the table this morning where we remember the Passover, where we remember that you provided the Lamb, not just for Israel, but for us. We thank you that the blood of the Lamb was shed so that our sins could be covered and that death would pass over us. We could have eternal life with you. Father, let us never forsake or forget what it cost you to save us. Don't let us drift into the monotony of coming to the table just out of superficial tradition. God's word compels us before we come to the table to ask the Holy Spirit to search our hearts. Let's ask him to do that. Just to ask the Holy Spirit to shine his light on our hearts to illuminate the darkness of our hearts and expose our sin. What words, what thoughts, what actions, what attitudes, what behaviors, what desires, what is in you that is not of Christ? Let's confess that before him now. As we confess our sins, let's ask the Lord for a heart of true and genuine repentance. This is what we saw last week, that we would not just have the feeling of conviction, but by God's grace and the power of His Spirit, there would be the action of repentance. There would be a turning of our back on our sins as we receive all that God desires for us to have in Christ. So, fathers, we come to this table this morning as we remember we reflect as we celebrate. Let the good news fall fresh on us again. Be glorified through our songs. Father, be glorified through our continued prayer, through our continued reflection and confession and repentance. God, let it all be a sweet fragrance before you this morning. Be glorified in the praises of you. So God, we come to you with songs. Let them be words that we mean from our heart. Help us to walk in joy in the goodness of what you've provided for us in Christ. Lord, help us to leave today boldly, proclaiming the good news of the gospel and the power of the Spirit. So, Father, we leave all that to you this morning. We ask to the end of your glory that you would answer according to your will. We ask all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Everyone said.